Hey everybody and hello humans, this is Not A Robot's DC Comic Review Show. Another week of Infinite Frontier and that's exactly what we're doing, diving into everything DC's got to offer and a few things outside the Infinite Frontier banner this week. Speaking of which, that's what we're covering. Rorschach number 6, Wonder Woman 770, The Joker number 1, Superman 29, the finale of Green Lantern Season 2 number 12, and Batman Urban Legends number 1. My name is Josh, and as always, my amazing co-hosts are with me again, Brandon. What up? And Rob. Why, hello, Clarice. <laughs> We're here to summarize, analyze, and editorialize every issue we cover without worrying about what those publishers think, so you know you're getting it straight and honest. We are on Twitter at NotARobotComics. Rob is at Rob underscore 2814, and Brandon is still needing that Zyrtec. Uh, we all answer our show mail to notarobotcomics at gmail.com, so go ahead and send us a shout-out there. The next part is dedicated to those that support us with their hard-earned money, but that's not the only way you can. Like, subscribe, download, share our episodes as much as possible. It helps to get the word out. Now, we will go ahead and say that big thank you to the humans who help us support the podcast. They do so by subscribing to our Patreon. We got tiers that start out at just $1 a month, so they can make sure that we keep bringing you more and better content and better shows. This is the Not A Robot Must Be A Human shout out in Roll Call. And that shout out goes to our humans Weird Science Jim, Blue Mondays, Hollister, and Rotch Crockett. A big salute to you and an even bigger thank you. So what are you waiting for? Sign up now and show us you just might be a human after all and get a shout out on the Not A Robot Must Be A Human Roll Call. Alright guys, intro's over. Anything new this week? Uh, not much going on. It's a pretty quiet week. Just busy with work and all. Yeah, no, I don't I don't have much to say. Just, uh, hey, no news is good news, yeah, right? Exactly. Oh yeah. At least we had a hell of a week for comic books. Oh yeah. Huh? I know. It's a big ass yeah, week. And one. not even just for DC, for me at least. Like no, it's, it's it's everywhere. Like, Marvel yeah. has a bunch of number like ones coming out and stuff, don't books. they? Yeah. So there's a lot of reading, but that's good. Covers Keeps us busy. covers this week have been amazing all all across the board, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. Pretty darn good. Yeah. It was it was hard to because um, I, I pick up my books every Wednesday and it was hard to, to choose because my store had a lot of the variants, which one I actually wanted. <laughs> that's a bitch. Whenever possible, go for the one twenty five. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys well rob and brandon don't have much news but the podcast does we've got one bit of news now and one we're going to drop at the end of the show so make sure that you listen all the way through we would like to formally announce that not a robot podcast network we are largely expanding the not a robot banner to include not just dc comics but also marvel and indie comics as well and we've already released our anime show, too, under the Not A Robot TV and Movies banner. You can find everything at notarobotpodcast.com, and that's just the beginning. We've got Gaming Geeks, The Horror Pod, War on Film, and a lot more coming your guys' way soon. And I mean really soon. So come on and join us for the ride, humans, as we get bigger and better. 
you ain't seen nothing yet. So it is the second week of Infinite Frontier, and things looked great last week. I'm hopeful that it continues this trend, but there's only one way to find out, and that's to get into the books. The first one this week was wrapped in a cover by Ore Fornes, who with Dave Stewart did the interior art as well. Clayton Cowles brought the letters that were written by Tom King, and Brandon is going to tell us all about Rorschach number six. All right, this is part six of the big Rorschach conspiracy, and this issue is a bit more of a reflection, uh, not just kind of catching us up on how uh, the... Artist Will Meyerson and the fan, Laura, finally got acquainted. So throughout the issue, we're basically shown a series of letters that show that they're in correspondence. I'm not going to get into them too much because some of them are particularly dense and hard to break down. But the gist of it is Laura and Will are kind of trading words on the meaning of the comic that Will had been working on, The Citizen and the Unthinker. And basically, Laura is talking about her life, how the book had had an impact on it, how she was kind of raised in this this bubble with her father, and how she wished she could escape to other worlds. And Will is kind of trading back and forth about how he was raised in a similar way, where, you know, his parents weren't super embracing of his career, and how they kind of just wanted him to be a part of society, a cog in the machine. Um, right. Mixed in with that is the second narrative of the detective who is currently uh, trying to investigate what's going on, what is the connection between the tapes uh, and the correspondence between uh, Will and Laura. And I think a lot of the intercuts uh, are particularly interesting because uh, in the background there is a debate between the two presidential candidates that have been previously mentioned the Governor Turley, and the current president, uh, Redford. And if you watch the Watchmen show, you'll know that that name sounds a little familiar. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, the actual issue itself doesn't progress the story that much. We return to the audio tape that was shown in the first issue that's kind of talking about the seance that the comics artists had, uh, but we finally mm -hmm. reveal who Will Meyerson was trying to get in contact with. That was Jack Cole. Um, and for any comic historian nerds out there, you'll know that Jack Cole is the creator of Plastic Man who kind of killed himself in spectacular fashion, uh, and is kind of one yeah, of the biggest... Yeah, you can say that again. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's one of the biggest mysteries in the industry. No one really knows why he did it. Um, oh, my, uh, my wife actually is, uh, she's almost completely finished with that new book that came out here. I uh, can't remember exactly when it was, but it was within the last year. And it's all about the evolution of Plastic Man as a comic character yeah. and the creator's relation to the Plastic Man character. I guess he poured quite a bit of himself into him. Oh, that's interesting. It's, I it's, didn't even know that. It's 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 really interesting though I mean, it has taken my wife who is she only reads like fringe stuff mm -hmm. i mean and i guess not necessarily fringe stuff but like neil gaiman and and she she's not one to read a, a cape book yeah. you know what i mean oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and it, now she she's pretty certain her favorite superhero is plastic man <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy it is yeah but um yeah basically so we see the detective kind of following the trails and that leads him to a mysterious house where he's knocking and it kind of ties all these narratives together where we finally see 
Laura and Will uh, unite, and the detective trying to get information on the mysterious guy who's dressed in a Rorschach costume. So this issue was pretty interesting, I would say. Uh, I don't know if it moved the plot along that much, as I said, but I think it was just an interesting and much-needed reflection on the two characters that kind of died um, at the beginning of the book. It really helps flesh them out. I felt a similar way about the last issue, where it's really just more of like a, a meditation and reflection on these characters' relationships to this citizen and unthinker book and kind of their how it shapes their perspective on the world. Um, so I, I would definitely say it's a very thoughtful book. It's definitely very dense. Uh, probably one of the most dense Tom King books I've ever read, which is interesting because I don't particularly think of Tom King as a dense writer. He's usually, I mean, when I think of, you know, his Batman or, or I don't know, Heroes in Crisis, it's usually very uh. little <laughs> words on a page. Yeah. It's, it's usually kind of rapid. It's letting the artist flex. But this one is a very dense, very thoughtful read. Um, and I would definitely recommend it if you've been reading the series so far um, and you're enjoying it. I'd say continue picking this one up. It's a thoughtful reflection. And I would probably feel comfortable giving this one an 8 out of 10. Maybe an 8.5 on a really good day. <laughs> well, man, if you guys have listened to this podcast with any kind of regularity, you know I am definitely not a Tom King fan. <laughs> I hated his Batman run, and I spoke out against it in, at, at every given opportunity. <laughs> Strange Adventures was okay, er, is okay. I don't mind that. It's a little plotting it, it there's so many questions that i feel like are going to go unanswered and uh mr miracle though i know everybody loves that one it was kind of blah to me oh, um Rort <laughs> but i mean that said i mean i kind of he's just not my kind of writer but something whatever it is that he's done to change up the way he's presenting his story dudes i can't I can't stop reading Rorschach. I love it, and that's really weird for me to say for a Tom King book. For me, this issue, I, the way I read it, it didn't move the plot along whatsoever, but it did give me one of the big things that was hanging over my head from truly enjoying this book is, how the hell did these guys get together? They ended up dead at the beginning of the, the series. Yeah. Where am I going to get the answers? Mm -hmm. And we got a whole issue that just it breaks down how these two misfits found this odd connection and bonded over it and it's 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 really it's just it's done really really well man yeah. and i of course i love the art too i'm gonna keep reading it and i'm with you brandon i'm giving it an eight out of ten and i rob what did you think about it i okay so just a primer to this i was not following rorschach up until yesterday and i binged mm -hmm. all six issues in the past 12 hours mm -hmm. and the covered issue six is like my mental roadmap right now just taking all the notes and pieces together <laughs> trying to figure <laughs> yeah, out this right? mystery and just just seeing the the end of this man in a rorschach costume at the end of the issue just it it's like i had to pull over and just stop and think i don't know i I know I just read all six issues recently, but I have no idea who that is. And if they did kind of allude to it, I might have missed it. If you guys have seen anything about that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I did not catch anything to say that it could be somebody that's shown up already, but yeah. I'm hooked. Yeah, I, yeah. I've not been... 
I, I have kind of a love... I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Tom King myself. <laughs> Heroes in Crisis was good at the beginning, but kind of fault. I did not like what he did with Wally West and Roy Harper. I was so mad about that. <sighs> uh, Batman was hit or miss to me, depending on the issue. But I loved Mr. Miracle. And this is honestly one of his strong books, I must say. The art's wonderful, too. The colors are wonderful choices. And this was also an 8 out of 10 for me. Mm. Yeah, I think one thing Brandon, I, I also yeah, really liked about this book, and I don't know if you guys picked up on it, but in Laura's letters, like they start out pretty simple, but mm. as it progresses and she keeps talking to Will, it's almost like they get more like intelligent. I don't know if that's the, the right way to say it. It sounds mean, but like it's almost like they get more thoughtful in a way. Yeah, because I mean, it feels like the the topic, the conversation is getting a lot deeper. Yeah. You know, that's it, almost philosophical at points. Yeah, and, and I, it, you know, that requires that mm-hmm. that step of intelligence. I just thought it was a really interesting way to kind of tie it all together. It, it like, like I said, man, it it really shows how these two built their relationship mm-hmm. and and were attracted to each other through similar, let's say, mental states. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, now, guys, from the fringes of DC to a definite mainstay in the universe, Wonder Woman number 770 has the main story with a little backup at the end. The first story is written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, with Travis Moore and Tamara Bonvillain on interior and exterior art and letters from Pat Brazil. The backup story is titled Young Diana and was written by Jordi Belair, who I believe up until now was just a colorist is that is that right that's right yeah she uh did a short batman story in uh a secret files issue two years ago and then she was doing buffy the vampire slayer all right on. well way to go jordy belair I'm, i'm a big fan of her coloring i'm glad to see her expanding her horizons so uh while she used to handle art Art is going to come from Paulina Gunnishow and Kendall Good and Becca Carey on letters. Rob, would you take us through this slightly oversized issue? That oversized is very correct. There's a lot to talk about in this issue. The Wonder Woman awakens in the midst of a great battle. An armor-clad warrior named Siegfried's helping her up as she stands up in the middle of the field, welcoming her to Asgard, the afterlife of warriors, where they fight, die, be reborn, and fight again. Diana joins in the battle quickly as she learns about her new surroundings. Diana goes to block a rival warrior's swing at Siegfried, but ends up decapitated instead. Before being resurrected, she sees a silhouetted figure telling her she's in the wrong place and wrong time. He doesn't know how it happened, but she cannot stay there. She awakens in Valhalla, the finest mead hall in Asgard. All the warriors are feasting and drinking, and they toast to Diana's resurrection and the Valkyries that carried her back. As the night goes on, Diana drinks until she's smashed and ends up kissing Siegfried. She blacks out once again, seeing the silhouetted figure, and they tell her she doesn't belong there and really belongs in Redacted. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Waking up in Siegfried's bed, she nervously asks what happened, to which he assures her nothing happened and that he is a man of honor. After she dresses, he asks her to spar with her, but she's looking to take a walk to see her new surroundings. During her travels, she remembers that she used to be able to fly, but in Asgard she cannot. There are new rules that she will have to learn. She comes across a curious creature that I've called a unicorn, 
named Ratatosk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Unicron. Yeah. Uh, named Ratatosk, asking for her help. Ratatosk brings her to Yggdrasil, the world tree. She is sick and dying, and if she dies, the sun will turn black, rivers will fill with blood, and family members will fight to the death, i.e. Ragnarok. The only one that can help is Wonder Woman, but Diana has no clue who that is. <laughs> Still, Di- exactly. <laughs> Still, Diana agrees to help just before the horns of war sound and the great battle begins again. She returns to Siegfried, and he gives her a magic sword crafted in the Dwarven Forge. In the midst of battle, Diana asks more about this life. Siegfried tells her this is all training for Ragnarok, and that it's bloody fun. Thor, the Thunder God, not a copyright, (laughs) arrives atop a giant troll and joins the battle, taking out many with one strike of lightning. Diana and Siegfried take a moment to watch in awe before jumping back to the battle themselves. Diana begins to remember the magic in her new sword, but takes a spear through the back before she can fully grasp it. As she dies again, she thinks she used to be invulnerable, and Siegfried tells her he was too, but when they die, their bodies stay behind, and their powers stay with them. Once more, Diana sees the silhouetted figure. This time, they tell her the longer she spends time here, the harder it will be for her to return. She should hold on to her memories as much as she can. She's an Olympian. Yggdrasil will die no matter what. This realm is on borrowed time. She wakes again in Valhalla, but Siggy is not there. She proceeds to look for him and finds out that he's not the only warrior that has not returned. She runs to the battlefield to find his body, but comes across Ratatosk instead. They tell her that the Valkyries left him and others behind due to them disappearing. Diana questions if she helps Ratatosk cure Re- Diana questions if she helps Ratatosk cure Yggdrasil, they will help her find the Valkyries, to which Ratatosk agrees. Just after Siegfried's spirit appears cold and lost. As he fades away, Diana is filled with determination to save her friend. The final text box of the issue tells us that her body may be gone, but her soul is in the sphere of the gods. So that is quite the opening issue for this adventure for Wonder Woman. Yeah, you yeah. can say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stoked for what's going to happen next. I can't wait. Sorry, I just need to pause for a sec. Am I doing the... I keep forgetting. Am I doing the backup now or do the talk about the issue first and then backup after? Whichever one you want to do. Okay, yeah. I'll. Sorry, yeah, let me restart. I'll do the backup now. That makes it easier. Yeah. Mm. So in the backup issue, we have tale of young Diana back on Themyscira. And young Diana is climbing the biggest tree on Themyscira to see the great view of the whole island. Today is her birthday. As she takes in the beauty of the view, she loses her footing and falls, but is saved by Jumpa, her pet kangaroo. Together, they race back to the city center to tell the queen that she is done with her studies and is ready to move on to something new, perhaps a job yet she craves adventure. After racing through the market, leaving a wake of destruction in her path, she bets Jumpa they can't make it to the seafront in less time than it took to get to the market. Reaching the shore, Diana cannot get Jumpa to stop properly, and she gets flung off and into the ocean. Nearly eaten by a shark, she is saved by Oanon. Oanon brings her to her birthday party. Diana wonders when she will be more like the others, brave and strong. 
They toast to Diana's birthday, but notice something is wrong with her feelings. She tells them she longs for more to do on the island, a new path. To Diana's surprise, they had already planned new lessons for her. Cleo will teach her to tell the story of Themyscira. Alright, so, the, yeah, great first issue. I love the artwork. The Even the, the costumes kept me hooked. It's a new chapter for Diana Prince, and cannot wait to see, like, where she is, what's going on, and who's this mystery figure that she keeps seeing every time she dies. I can't get a, a read on who that could be. So yeah, the second story, the backup story for me was a bit too childlike. Seems like it should have been more of like a, a side story on its own meant just for for children to read. So that brought the score down for me a little bit. For this overall, I gave it a 7.5 out of 10. Right on. Brandon, what do you think about it? Um, I really like this setting for Wonder Woman. I'm a huge fan of, of Norse mythology. Um, I don't know if any... Mm. If, I mean, this is the DC comic show, but <laughs> if anyone's reading no, it... I've, I've been a fan of Norse yeah, mythology. It, well, a lot of different kinds of mythology. Oh, yeah. Um, but, a lot of different pantheons. Ever yeah. since I was old enough to even, I guess, realize them. I've... They're just—it's really interesting. Yeah, it's Since just a junior lot of, high, a lot and that of, was a long time ago. <laughs> it's a lot of—it's just a lot of fascinating storytelling. But yeah, I, I know this is the DC Comics Review Show, but I'm also reading Thor, so that like definitely satisfies my um, Norse mythology taste. So to see Wonder Woman kind of go through that same thing is just really cool. But also kind of see her assessment of this world and kind of how she bonds with the animals like Ratatosk and. Also, like Rob said, the mystery of the mysterious figure uh, is definitely got my interest. Um, and I, I would be a hypocrite if I were to say that I absolutely love the idea of memory loss stories, because usually I'm not a big fan of those. I feel like they can be just, it's a bit of a trope, and it's not one that I really enjoy. But I think when applied in the right setting, especially like this, it can work really well. Because uh, it definitely seems to be tapping into like the mythological aspect of it, so um, all of that stuff is great. And then I haven't even talked about how amazing the art is. I mean, Travis Moore is like such a blessing for this book, and I'm so glad to see him do something regularly. And I remember it's funny we were talking about the Tom King Batman book, and I, I remember seeing him do a one shot there, and it was. Even if the story wasn't that great, like the art was just amazing. So to see him do like this epic fantasy book was really great. Um, but yeah, I, the backup was kind of like Rob said, a little too cartoony for my tastes. I think it was cute. I think it was great to see Jumpa because you never see like Wonder Woman's pets. How it is yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but it's other all than that, when Ace the Bat Hound. Yeah, exactly. Wait, everyone's waiting for that that super pets book. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it was it was just Me okay. Too. I'm I not gonna lie. Oh yeah, I definitely read that. But yeah, overall, I would probably give this one maybe like a, a seven point seven five out of ten, an eight on a good day. Because I I like the setup, but and I don't know if it's totally there for me just yet. Right, on. makes sense. I I really really like the first story, man. I mean, I, okay, Wonder Woman lost her memory. She's in Asgard, and then Wonder Woman's gonna Wonder Woman. That is the issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
It doesn't even, she, she, she can die. She knows she, she's not supposed to. She can't fly and she knows she should be able to. She's got no idea of her true identity, but she's not going to stop trying to help people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's awesome. There's a lot of questions that the book gave us and absolutely zero answers, but I'm so interested. I don't care. (laughs) Being such a huge Wonder Woman fan, this story does feel like it's right up her alley with the pantheon of the gods and, and exploring other pantheons of that. That is cool as hell. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, I, the, who's that talking to her when she dies? Where are all the Valkyries? Why in the hell is she in Asgard? I've got no clue, but I, I can't wait to find out, and man. What's and with are, that and, weird pose that the guy's doing, too? Like, he's chained up or something. Yeah, and are, yeah, we, going to do, are we going to see Thor again? Yeah. <laughs> with or without the giant that he's riding. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, And like Brandon said, I mean, the art in the this first part is... There's no less a word than awesome i loved it it was great now the young diana story that came afterward i mean honestly it's a trope that's a little overdone we know that diana was impetuous as a child she needed to learn discipline and humility none of that is new it's what made her such a great strong character and turned her into who she is now now that said i thought the art was pretty cool from like a simple animation point of view Mm -hmm. simple enough to be cute without looking like a 90s cartoon which really gets on my nerves lately Uh, brandon's gonna hate me for saying this but i just found out that riley rosmo is gonna be drawing the harley quinn book and i yelled (laughs) i literally yelled out loud (laughs) he's gonna be on two books that sucks two 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 books of characters that i love yeah uh, him and Bendis will be continuing the Legion of Superheroes. Wait, oh, seriously? Oh no! Yep, and it's gonna continue. Uh, it's gonna continue the Future State story. It's not even going back. All twelve of those issues that came out last year that everyone paid four dollars an issue for, all of those storylines are just gonna go away now, wow. and they're gonna start back up with basically the Legion of Substitute Superheroes. What it's like five hundred years in the future or whatever it's supposed to be. But yeah, so not happy at all. But back to a book that I did like. The the second story brought it down a little bit for me, so I'm going to have to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Now, Diana is a hero of hope, justice, and truth. Those are points that they have been especially trying to hit home with us throughout her recent titles. Nobody can argue or deny that. But the next issue we're going to cover features pretty much the exact opposite of that the first part is the joker with a backup about punchline with a cover from gillen march and tomu mori the joker was written by james tynan the fourth with art from gillen march and arif prianto and tom napolitano bringing in the lettering punchline's backup story was brought to us by sam johns and james tynan the fourth with art by mirka Adolfo and romulo fiardo jr and lettering from ariana mar so without further ado, let's take a trip with the Clown Prince of Crime and his protege. So um, I only knew about this from the previews, but this is not a Batman book, just so y'all know. Yes, it's set in his world, but this is a Joker book with Jim Gordon as the current protagonist. It starts out with Gordon retelling his days when he first moved from Chicago to Gotham shortly before getting to the current events. 
The explosion at Arkham that we read about last week resulted in many deaths, but also somewhere between 50 and 100 inmates escaped before Batman got there. So not everybody's dead, and I I, I guess that's okay. <laughs> I thought it was going to be kind of cool to have that giant rogue gallery cut down quite a bit, but apparently not. It does mention that Jeremiah Arkham is dead, or presumed dead. And it says that Jonathan Crane is presumed dead as well, but we all know that part is wrong as least. In the wake of Bane's death, little Santa Prisca is setting up vigils for him, but Jim doesn't believe he's dead and is turned down by the coroner's office when he asks to see the body. Nakano wants him to head up a special Joker task force, now that Bullock has resigned, but Gordon turns him down. After some more reminiscing about how the Joker has infiltrated and distorted his life through actions against himself, and most of all Barbara and James Jr., he's approached by a mystery woman in the car asking him to get in because she needs to speak with him about the Joker. And he says, that sounds about right. <laughs> Later, she identifies herself as Crescenta. The purpose of the meeting? Crescenta. I don't even think I'm right saying that right. Crescenta, Crescenta, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Anyways... That lady and her associates, whom she refuses to name, are tired of the Joker and want him zeroed, and they think James Gordon is the right man for the job. He's offered a credit card with no limit, $25 million, a private jet to take him wherever he needs to go for the hunt of the Joker, and finally, one week to decide. She also has offered him a lot of information, starting with the fact that the Joker was last seen in Belize. And that is where the end of the story takes us, showing us that the Joker is in Belize at a mansion full of people that he's killed. Again, fun times. Definitely Joker all the way there. Um, over in Punchline, as Alexis K is going to trial, it seems that all of the witnesses have mysteriously ended up dead. Dr. Leslie Tompkins can offer up a psych profile, but that's now, that's all the non-circumstantial evidence they have. Later, Leslie is talking to Harper Rowe about the situation and tells her that Bluebird is needed to track down things to help put Punchline away. Oh, man. I was so happy when they brought her back. I know. <laughs> I feel uh, like she was an amazing character, yes. and then they were just like, Whoop, we don't need you anymore. I, lo I love how she's the assistant to like Leslie Thompson's. It's so It's such a great idea. I think so too. I mean, it fits her character. It fits the the narrative for her. I I love it. Yeah. Man. No. When when I when I saw they brought her back, I was I was smiling quite a lot because it was it was just great <laughs> yep, to see her too. again. Yeah. See, I started thinking that they were going to bring her back initially mm -hmm. because way back when Clown Hunter's identity was still a mystery, I thought that was going to be Cullen Rowe. Huh. Well, that would have been good. That's, that, oh yeah. That might yeah. Be that would have been really cool. <laughs> And it would have fit it, but um, we're given a quick look into Blackgate to show us that Punchlight is thriving in jail and holding her own before we go back outside to see Harper Road talking to her brother Cullen. He's still palling around with Punchline supporters, and Harper warns him the typical way to be safe while she's out of town, and he responds the typical way a younger brother would, yeah, 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 whatever. The last page shows us exactly how determined Bluebird is about taking down Punchline. For the city and even more for her brother and okay i didn't a joker title a villain titles there unless it's deathstroke honestly they're usually not very good oh, yeah. at least in my opinion yeah. and this one 
uh, and I've read previous Joker runs that I thought were like, I was like, man, I'm disappointed. I spent money on this, <laughs> but this, this was, this was amazing, man. Both stories in this book were awesome in both written content and the way that it was drawn, colored, inked, penciled. I don't care. This was awesome. I love this issue and I really didn't think it would. I'm giving this a solid ape out of 10. Brandon, uh, what do you think about the Joker? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Villain titles usually like vary, so some can be really good and some can be just total crap. Um, but I don't think I've enjoyed a first issue this much since uh, the Sinestro book they did for the New 52. Um, like it was just, I, I think Jim Gordon is just such a great character to build a Joker story around because, I mean, pretty much this entire issue is just him haunted by his experience of joker so it works perfectly as like a noir detective story but also as like a, a horror psychological horror story um yeah so it, i mean if there's anybody in in the entire comic universe that the joker has messed with as much or at least close to as much as he has with batman it's jim gordon oh absolutely and like yeah. every aspect of his family which they touch on in here like they touch on sarah who's dead and Barbara was just kind of catching in and also James who's dead. So it was just, it was a great way to weave Jim Gordon into this story, but also build the story around the Joker. Um, and I loved the art by Guillaume March. I mean, I think it really does a great job, um, evoking the horror style for this book, uh, especially some of the scenes where it's like, you know, Jim is in shadow or he's being haunted by the Joker and it really feels like a, like a terrifying book. And then moving on to the second story, uh, and it kind of ties in with the first story. I, I remember when they first talked about this punchline having supporters in Gotham storyline, and I, I wasn't totally into it. But as they fleshed it out, I think it just gets more and more interesting, especially when they weaved in um, Harper's little brother, Cullen, because it just it feels like it's more connected to the city each and every time and i love the panels where we see it's like kids walking around with like the free punchline t-shirts and all that stuff so it's it's a it's a story that i'm getting more and more interested in as it progresses um and i did really like the art in the second story by mirka and dolfo i thought that that definitely worked well um with the the mood of the story and then of course it was just absolutely great to see harper road do literally anything again so that was always going right. to help now call me crazy, but it, like if 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 this was going on in in right now, like yeah. in the real world, and there was some kind of terrorist, and and there was a punchline, I for some reason I think that the real world would probably be having the same thing going on. There oh, would be free punchline yeah, T-shirts the whole would. nine yards. I mean, I I think of like you know obviously we want to focus on the comics, but I I think of like. The, those people who kind of um, will obsess over school shooters. I don't know if you guys have heard of mm. that, but it's it's people who basically just kind of romanticize them in a way, and they, they almost yeah. try to justify their actions. And so it's kind of like that. I think that might be uh, the commentary that James is trying to touch on, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I mean, it definitely could be. I yeah. mean, you don't even just see it relegated to school shooters. I mean, serial killers yeah. uh, just, yeah. they get love letters and nudie pictures, all kinds oh, yeah. of weird shit. Yeah. Some of them have gotten married. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you do know that guy like killed 12 people and ate one of them, right? Yeah. yeah. They're completely ex. okay with it. Yeah. 
It's crazy. It is the, but, um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed this issue more than I thought I, I would. Because conceptually, I'm like a Joker book, eh. But if you make it about something, you know, it could really, it could really be an interesting read. So I would probably give this one a strong 8.5 out of 10. Maybe even a 9 on a good day. I'm not sure. Uh, Rob, what did you think about the Joker? I loved it. This was honestly a book I've been waiting for for a long time, and I didn't even know it. One of my favorite movies is Seven from the 90s, <laughs> if you guys have seen that. And I'm getting a oh, lot yeah. of vibes yeah, of that is. movie in this book. <laughs> Just that that crime drama thriller where there's like a deep, dark murder that they can't find, and he's doing all this horrible stuff. Obviously, Jim Gordon's got the history with the Joker, but I'm still getting that, that feeling of it's going to end badly for Jim. Mm-hmm. It's great to see him back. It's weird to see him with gray hair, but I'm enjoying that. Is anybody else getting a vibe like that big guy in the trench coat where he met with the the rich lady? Is that Bane? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. He kind of has a Bane-ish mask. Yeah. It's, it's it's very similar, but I I man, I really hope it's not because it like I said, it's it's a very Bane-inspired mask and it would be mm-hmm. I feel like that's tipping your hat way, way, way too soon. Oh yeah, yeah. I feel like that's meant to be a, a red herring. I don't, I don't know who this yeah. character is supposed to be. I'm just getting no it. clue because yeah. they, they're pushing the whole idea of of Bane being killed by the Joker. There's all these other people killed by the Joker too, but everybody they're focusing so much on Bane. That's maybe you're right. It is a red herring. They're just pushing that idea. Mm. Right, so, because don't don't dangle killing Bane in front of me in that kind of a spectacular fashion, yeah. and and show me him fucking dead, yeah. and then turn around and undo it. Yeah, don't that do that. that. Would be a real yeah, bummer. yeah. The the punchline story. I love the idea of punchline. When she first showed up on the scene, the punchline one shot kept me hooked with her whole story, and yeah. this is not disappointing so far. The I'm happy Harper Rowe is back, like you guys. I loved Harper's character when she showed up. It was a very fresh take on a Bat Family edition. My biggest question is, how old is Leslie Tompkins, really? Because every time she shows up in a book, she's an entirely different age. Honestly, I think they might be doing (laughs) with her the same thing they did with Jim Gordon in this issue, where she's dyeing her hair. Oh, yeah. Like that would be my only explanation because every time she, yeah, it's exactly like that. Every time she shows up, she's got like gray streaks, but she still has brown, but she still looks yeah. kind of young. But sometimes she looks older. I, I have no idea. Yeah, like one book she's thirty, the next book she's eighty. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great character. Cool. Just like let's let's try and figure out like get a groundwork of, of Lizzie Tompkins' backstory. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's well, a great I mean, book. I think that I think that she was de-aged intentionally. To make her be able to fit into, I guess, being an activist and stuff. Because, I mean, she was originally introduced as an old lady when when Bruce just started out. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, she's kind of slowly Benjamin buttoned her way back <laughs> to being chronologically, you know, making sense. Now, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. What I'm not okay with is when you see Tim Drake drawn like he's 30 in one issue and then the oh next issue he's 12 yeah. <laughs> you know you know what it is i was thinking about that the other day i think it's the hair i think when tim has shorter hair he looks older but when he has long hair mm-hmm. 
he looks like he's 14. Because in Young hey, Justice, yo, they oh, gave yeah. him the long hair again, and he looks like he's 13. But in Detective Comics, exactly. previously, he could have been 19, and I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> You're right there. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the future with this book to see where it goes. And I gave this a 9.5 out of 10. I'm mm. sold on this story. I can't fault you for that one. All right, everybody, we will be back to cover the rest of the issues right after this commercial break. And don't forget to stick around until the end so you can hear that last announcement. And we are back. I hope that wasn't too bad on you. Thanks for sticking with Not A Robot. We're going to start this second half off with Big Blue. Superman number 29 also has a backup story in it. All of the art inside and out is by Phil Hester, Eric Gapsler, and Hi-Fi, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, with lettering from Dave Sharp. That's for the first story, anyway. The backup story is called Tales of Metropolis and was written by Sean Lewis, with letters again from Dave Sharp, and art from Sammy Bosry and Ulysses Areola. Rob, care to take us up, up, and away? Right, so Superman and Superboy are together again, and they're fighting off an invasion from interdimensional creatures in outer space. As they succeed in throwing the invaders back through the rip in space they came through, a Starlab space station nearby fires a beam from a singularity cannon at the breach and seemingly closes it. As the Superfam are floating back down to Earth, we see Amanda Waller, she's a really busy person, watching from a monitor, while texting a Starlabs employee, possibly one on the space station. The Starlabs employee tells Waller that the radiation from the breach negatively affects Superman, but does not affect his son, and that the Singularity Cannon failed to seal the breach. But they are standing by for a second attempt. Waller tells them to hold off, for the impact on Superman bears further study. We then visit the Kent family in the Metropolis apartment, spending time together, but Lois notices John is a little down, as does Clark. Before they can address it, the breach opens up again, and Superman and Son fly off to save the day. During the fight, Superman gets hit by an energy beam from one of the invaders and gets injured. Waller, noticing this, tells the Star Lab staff that it's getting out of hand and to seal the breach now. Just as the cannon starts to fire, Superman throws the last invader through the breach, sealing it away once more. As Clark and John tend to the former's wound, the Star Labs employee tells Waller that they think the breach is finally closed and they got the Superman data she wanted. The Superfam fly back to Earth as Clark notices John looking down again and says, let's not go home yet. Taking a trip down memory lane, they get to the issue John is dealing with. While in the future, he had his dad everywhere around him and learned more about history than he should have. Through tears, he tells his dad this is the day he's going to die. Meanwhile, Kellex, back at the fortress, is scanning the breaches and finds out they started inside the Starlab space station. Kellex informs Superman, and as they fly off to question the crew, another breach opens up and an invader arrives about to attack the station. Now, in the backup story, we got Bibbo Babowski. He's arriving at a star-studded movie premiere, and at his side is a beautiful young woman named Dolores. They discuss an opportunity Jimmy Olsen has given him to write about the city of Metropolis. Bibbo is uncertain he wants to do it. Across the street is Deadstream and Projectress, who suspiciously looks like Dolores. Projectress sends Deadstream over to the premiere and changes his appearance to look like a handsome attendee in a nice suit. He hits on Dolores, which causes Bibbo to retaliate, but Dolores pulls him back. 
As they enter, Jimmy notices some weird mist around the man and Dolores. While in the movie, the man starts harassing Bibbo more, and with one more cat call, Bibbo has had enough. After being tackled through the theater doors and thrown into the lobby fountain, Deadstream has also had enough. He changes into a being of pure water and blasts Bibbo to a wall. Bibbo sees the control knob for the fountain and switches off the water, taking away Deadstream's power, which gives him the chance to spear him one more time into the fountain's center. As Bibbo looks for Dolores, Jimmy tries to get her attention and she turns to smoke. Bibbo turns and sees Deadstream is also gone, having escaped down the drain. Jimmy tells Bibbo this seems like they targeted him, and convinces him this is why he should write more than ever. As Bibbo sits in his apartment typing his first article, Deadstream and Projectress watch from the adjacent rooftop, ready to start the next step of their plan. So, this is not what I expected from a Superman story going into Infinite Frontier. I thought it was going to be a bit bigger, a bit more colorful. It's fun, but it's reminding me a bit too much of Superman the Animated Series, and having Bibbo in there kind of helps that. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a slow story, and it also seems kind of like a red herring, because there's no way they're going to kill Superman off like this. You, you can kind of figure out how this is going to end. So for I me, mean, we just we just read comics where he's still alive in the future. Yeah. Exactly, even yeah. way yeah. in the future. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Bibbo since the animated series growing up in the '90s. I he's been around a little bit longer than that, uh, but I, I find he, he's a fun character. He's a really down to earth guy. I probably enjoyed the Bibbo story more than I enjoyed the main story. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, overall, between both, I gave it a six point five out of ten. Uh, I I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. What about you, Brandon? What did you think? Um, this might sound weird, but I I kind of enjoyed this issue. Um, I mean, I I didn't really have any familiarity with Philip Kennedy Johnson outside of the Future State work that he had done. I knew that he did a book called The Last God. And I think I read a couple issues of that, and I didn't really finish it. I wasn't as into it. Um, but he uh, he also did the uh, Tales from the Dark Multiverse uh, issue where uh, B- Batman was taken by Azrael and like stripped of his legs and all of oh, that stuff. Was that him? Uh, I thought he, that was Kyle Higgins. Yeah, I, huh. I maybe. Um. Well, damn it! Now you got me wondering <laughs> if it was Kyle Higgins yeah. or not. Um, okay. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not super familiar with him as a writer, so I didn't really have any expectations going into this, but, um, I, I, I kind of enjoyed the, I mean, it wasn't perfect, let me say that, um, but I enjoyed some of the more thoughtful moments between John and Clark, because it feels like his attempt to kind of reconcile what Bendis was trying to do with that relationship. And if, if the direction, if the directive from the higher-ups right now is we want to keep John older and we just don't feel like de-aging him right now, it's just not the direction we're looking to go, the question really is, well, what do you do with that? What can you do with that? What kind of relationship can you build? And it feels like this is at least trying to address that, which is interesting to me. Um, in terms of the mm-hmm. plot with the rift, that's not as interesting. It's you know kind of just a generic invasion, nothing really there. But I think as long as it spends more time reflecting on the relationship of father and son, 
that's probably going to be more interesting to me than anything else. And it feels like it's genuinely trying to address some kind of relationship they have, which I feel like Bendis just did not address at all. Or maybe he did. I didn't even really get a chance to finish that run, if I'm being honest. Um, as for the backup story, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, I knew Sean Lewis did the uh, Superman of Metropolis book, which I didn't really like at all. And right. his dialogue tropes had some quirks that I'm... I noticed a couple times here that it just made it a little weird, but I think the story was just kind of nice focusing on like a, a smaller Metropolis character. And like you said, it's always fun to see Bibbo. Um, I loved him in Superman, the animated series. So to just kind of see him like throwing his weight around and brawling with guys is, is always fun to see. Yeah. Um, so overall, I think I would probably give this, I mean, Maybe a 7.5, maybe an 8 on a good day, but a, a strong 7.5 because I feel like even if it's not the perfect introductory issue, it at least does provide some kind of direction that I'm somewhat interested in. Um, if it is going to head down the path of the death of Superman, I have no interest in that. They've done it five different times and I really could not care less, but I think I was focused more on the relationship um, rather than anything else. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. For me, for me in that first issue, there just wasn't much of a story except a narrative about how parents fail and falter in front of their kids and then this kids stop believing that they're safe. Other than that, it's we find out Superman's supposed to die soon, according to the future, but we all know that doesn't mean shit within the comics, and we've all <laughs> seen them multiple times. <laughs> we've all seen them multiple times in the future. It just didn't work for me, really, not at all. The art was okay. And to be honest, it was a little bit blocky. The backgrounds, the scenery was really good. The faces and the characters, I was not much of a fan of. But yeah, I, feel, I was still I okay like with Phil it Hester, because it's not Jar Jar. Yeah, I feel like Phil Hester's kind of an acquired taste. Like, I don't. He, he this, is. There's this book that um, Jeff Lemire is doing right now. It's called Family Tree, and it definitely works there because it's got like this like like blocky horror vibe to it. But I don't know if. It, there are definitely some panels here where it doesn't really work. No, yeah, you kind of have to really dig that yeah. art, as far as I'm concerned, in any case. Um, oh, and by the way, Philip Kennedy Johnson, uh, I got the issue wrong. It was a Batman issue, though. He did the Hush oh, run. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, as far as the first issue goes, it was really lackluster for me, but the second one, I dug that. One, because I've loved Bibbo since the death of Superman comics. And two, because it made a pretty interesting setup for a non-Superman soup story. I'm not sure if these villains even existed before, but I like them nonetheless. And the art in the backup issue looks so good, especially compared to the so-so art in the first part of the book. Altogether, mostly because of that first story not being as good as the backup and I'm praying that this is not something that I say all the time. I'm going to have to give this one a 6 out of 10. From the boy in blue to the team in green, we're next heading off to talk about the concluding issues of Green Lantern Season 2. We haven't been including this run with the show until this point because, honestly, I was saving it for my own enjoyment. Written by Grant Morrison with art, color, and cover by Liam Sharp and Steve Wands on letters, we're bringing the light to this Green Lantern story. Brandon? 
Okay, this is the part of the show where I try not to cry because I've been following this book for two, almost two and a half years, and I'm really, right. really sad to see it go. Um, but here we are, the end of Ultra War, the big showdown throwdown between the Nomad Empire and Hector Hammond versus Hal Jordan and his Athmora friends, uh, those being Feck, Sister Samandra, and Vespero, and those are awesome names. Um... The issue opens with Hal Jordan fighting off the mind-controlled minions of the warlord Dratha as Hector Hammond kind of reflects on his life up until that point. Uh, he's basically saying that Hal Jordan has ruined everything that Hector could have ever had, his life with Carol, his career, and he wants to make sure that Jordan pays with his life. Uh, after defeating Dratha's goons alongside Vespero, Hal Jordan fights off uh, his greatest Hal Jordan fights off the greatest hits list of all his old enemies. We get to see the shark, Black Hand, Major Disaster, and the Tattooed Man fighting for Hal Jordan's death as he easily takes them down. Uh, it is then revealed that Hal Jordan's old foes are um, actually toys, uh, and shortly after, Sister Samandra and Feck join the fight, having escaped from Hector Hammond's clutches. We see that the two have been upgraded in the most amazing heavy metal way imaginable and how jordan basically has to talk them down from their brainwashing um as they begin to and i just say that they should have let liam sharp design all those crazy ass costumes that we got in death metal yes oh that would have been amazing because this is like i mean i think this feels more metal than anything in death metal oh yeah, yeah by far um but anyway as they begin to regain their individuality, uh, Jordan plants a kiss on Sister Samandra, and they charge off into battle uh, as a narration kind of sums up the last hurrah of our Athmoran friends as they all perish in battle. Uh, and I, I gotta admit, that one kind of got to me, because I really liked Hal's strange sword and sorcery friends on the sword and sorcery planet. Um, but after getting his ring back from Hector Hammond, and then stopping Hammond and negotiating a deal with the Nomad Empire to end the Ultra War, Hal Jordan is able to fix the Cosmic Grail, which is essentially the power tool that they need to continue their existence and the reason they've been waging Ultra War, and ultimately end the Cosmic Conflict. Unfortunately, Hal has to do this at the cost of essentially speeding up the clock on Ethmora because it's basically been stuck in time, and doesn't age, so he can kind of keep it in his sword and sorcery way, but uh, basically Hal is able to do this, fix the cosmic rail, end the conflict, and uh, as he leaves and catches up with the young guardians who, after being impressed with Jordan yet again, offer him a promotion, he promptly refuses in classic Jordan fashion. Uh, he briefly catches up with the guardian Saul and the lanterns that are introduced at the start of this run, Trilla True, Maxim Talks, Bulk, and Rickick Toro, and heads into space for one last ride on the Cosmic Real Energy and a beautiful splash page of Hal Jordan soaring through space. Uh, this issue was a great crescendo for both the second season as well as the whole run. Liam Sharp's art... Agreed. Liam Sharp's art is mind-blowing and beautiful as usual and evokes a murky, heavy metal vibe that works perfect with the environment. I really enjoyed the final conflict with Hammond and the Nomad Empire, and I think the use of Hal's incredible will as a way to wrap things up really speaks to the heart of what this series is about. 
Uh, for me, this series mm-hmm. has really been the ultimate test of what a Green Lantern can do, particularly Hal Jordan uh, in cosmic settings. As I said earlier, we see our new lanterns for a final time, and they're great, especially Bulk and Trilla True. I really hope they stick around. They're, they have awesome designs, and they're just the fun lanterns that I, I wish I could be with them forever. Uh, but finally, the series also <laughs> echoes its opening with Hal kind of aimlessly wandering on Earth in the very first issue, and ending with Hal aimlessly wandering in space. No matter where he goes, Hal doesn't change, and we love him for it. I adored this series yep. from its beginning two years ago, and even during its rockier parts, I always found a way to enjoy it. I can't wait to reread this run, and I am honored, honored to give this issue a 10 out of 10. And there is no on a happier day. This is a 10 out of 10 any day. Of the <laughs> Excellent dismount, Grant. I couldn't be more satisfied. Right. It's uh, you know what, and it's 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 not just the end of the Green Lantern run for Grant Morrison, but he is at least the last that I heard that this will be the last Cape book that he ever writes. Yeah, and I I I hope that's not true. I really do. I'm still waiting for Multiversity Two, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I just if this was a way that Grant could end uh, their career at DC, I couldn't be happier. Uh, Rob, what did you think about it? Okay, I'm going to be uh, a bit of a negative Nancy on this one. <laughs> uh I I read season one. I read Black Stars. I enjoyed them. I started season two, and it's I don't even. I'm a huge Grant Morrison fan. I enjoy Liam Sharp's art. Anybody that knows me can say I'm a Green Lantern fan. But for some reason, this book just doesn't swing well with me. I don't know what it is. I couldn't actually read all of it. And I, I went through issue 12, and it's I can see the beauty for what it is. The art is wild. It just doesn't resonate with me. I can't honestly understand why. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've talked to <laughs> a lot of people about this book, and it seems like there are people who really love it, like me, who are just fully into it, and there are some people who are kind of like, it's interesting, but there are some moments that don't really work, and then there are people who it just doesn't sit right for it. So I, I think it's definitely one of those books where if you're into it, you're into it, and if you're not, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, You know, uh, Stepan Sedgwick has that kind of effect on people, too, oh, yeah. where it's just absolutely gorgeous, but they, you know, some people are just, not, well, that's not a comic book. I'm like, no, that's damn art. Oh, are you yeah. kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I even had to struggle through season one a little bit, but mm-hmm. I did it because it's Green Lantern and it's Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. Right. But I just I couldn't do a Green Lantern season two. I, despite all that, I can still appreciate it for what it is. I can see the beauty it's trying to convey, and mm-hmm. I still gave it a seven out of ten. Nice. Well, look at that. That's yeah. how you know he's a total Green Lantern yeah. stand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. Um, like Brandon, I kind of can't even talk about this with gushing, so I'm going to keep it short. I absolutely love Grant Morrison's writing. And if you get a chance to check out Super Gods, which is not a comic book, it's just yes, a regular book. Yes, if you get a chance, I read that this summer. Oh, so good. Oh my God. So good. And let me tell you, it's not just a dissection of what a superhero is, mm. but it, it's also a really 
deep dive, not into just Grant Morrison's life, but kind of his psyche too. Yeah. And it's, it's man, it's, it's an awesome read or an audiobook. Take your pick, but yeah. check it out. I, I honestly think uh, it kind of changed my like perspective on Grant a little bit, just like how I view the way he writes his books and he thinks about these characters. Like it really kind of opened. It my gave eyes. me a lot more respect about. Oh yeah, it. for sure. You know, he doesn't just come on with, I've got a great story for this character. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, this is, if he's got, if he comes in and says, I've got a story to tell for this character, that dude has done six years worth of research oh, yeah. and gone all the way back to the 40s to find some <laughs> of the most obscure <laughs> shit to build upon. Libra and Final Crisis. He, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and damn near everything he's done, Morrison is awesome at, man. This entire arc, in my opinion... Rob has been no less than brilliant. <laughs> you, <laughs> oh, man. you know, just like in Super Gods, you can tell that Morrison dumped quite a bit of himself into this story and the art. Liam Sharp is a great artist, simply put, but this is him at the top of his game. It, to me, it's beyond beautiful. Oh, yeah. And you couldn't ask for a more excellent send off and conclusion to this epically crazy and fun space opera odyssey and there's really no other way to describe season one and two combined so this one is going to get a nine out of ten for me and on to the last issue we're covering this week and this one is an anthology we'll break it down by story with each of us taking a slice with a cover from haikam habshi let's get right into batman urban legends number one First up is Red Hood and Batman in Cheer, written by Chip Zdarsky with Ed from Eddie Barrows, Ira Friara, and Idriano Lucas, with help from Marcus Toe on the flashbacks, and Becca Carey bringing us those letters. Before I get into the story at all, let me just say that other than the amazing art on the Green Lantern title, this is by far the best art, pencils, inks, and color that we have seen all week. Oh, absolutely. And Jason back in the domino mask, sweet! Yep. <laughs> Red Hood is tracking down a new drug called Teardrops, obviously from the title of the story, and it's flooding Gotham. Taking down a buyer, he gets the location of where that buyer gets those drugs from. Meanwhile, Batman is out working against the same problem. He finds out that Teardrops are very similar on a chemical level to Scarecrow's fear gas, just basically the opposite effect. It starts causing people to die or kill themselves, just now in a way that they'll go after themselves instead of having to be attacked. Batman assumes that Crane is dead after the attack on Arkham, but is considering that he very well may not be. He has Oracle do some digging, and she says he's either dead or completely off the grid. He tells her what he's up to, and she lets him know that Jason is working on the same thing. And Batman isn't exactly happy about that, calling Jason a killer. I'm a little, like, we know that Jason has killed people before, but he's been kind of, Batman's just glossed over that, with the exception of three Jokers. Mm-hmm. He's kind of just jocked, he's kind of just glossed over that with everything. They had an understanding. Red Hood didn't kill inside of Gotham. Batman was, okay, fine. I That's the way I always understood it, but uh, yeah. apparently he's got a bit of a problem with it now. <laughs> But uh, speaking of Jason, he's out there trying to find this kid's dad that he found. 
And they have a great moment where you can tell this kid looks up to him and even calls himself Blue Hood after Jason essentially asks him to be brave. He gives him his mask and instructions to say, Oracle, I need help, if it turns out that he might. Find the dad, Jason does. He's working at the place that is making the teardrops. He catches him after downing him with some rubber bullets. And this guy sucks at being a dad. And he, he says he hated both the mom and the kid and that he even gave the kid some of those drugs. And I guess that was enough for Jason, who then shoots him again, this time with real bullets. Red Hood has killed in Gotham again. And you can immediately see the regret here on Jason's face as the story comes to a close. There's that useless lump of semen that's bleeding out into the street next to him, and he seems a little beat up about it. Uh, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but that, that was fucking amazing. Oh Holy shit, Sadarsky. Yep. Are, are, are you sure you only want to do six yeah, issues? No, Seriously? Yes. <laughs> you want to write Red Hood? <laughs> are you sure? Yeah, can, can we have that, please? Can you come back? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always loved Zdarsky's writing. He is, he's a bit of an acquired taste for some people, I suppose, but uh, I've always loved his writing, and I've always wanted him in the Batman world. Red Hood is the perfect character for him to write inside of DC, and as it turns out, he is pretty damn good with Batman, too. I'm giving that little story a full-on 9 out of 10. <laughs> Brandon, what did you think about? Uh, I, I, I love this story. I, I, I've been so stoked ever since it was announced that Chip Zdarsky uh, was going to be writing anything for DC, literally anything, but it was Red Hood, a character that I think kind of needed a little bit of a direction uh, after a while. Um, and and I, I, yeah. I, I don't think you could have picked a better writer for this job. I said this elsewhere, but I really think that this has the potential to be the best Red Hood story since his introduction. Like, I, I really believe that. Because you can just tell from the heartfelt connection that Zdarsky has to Red Hood and his connection to Gotham City and how he's really just trying to help his neighborhood and... and I love the parallels that they try and draw where it's like the beginning where he's talking about kids growing up in a violent city and they use that in his immediate segue into Jason kind of growing up as Robin, which we know his experience as Robin wasn't always the best. And I just, there's so much to gush about in this issue. I could be here for like an hour mm -hmm. um, and I haven't even talked about how amazing the artwork is. Like, oh my God, holy shit. Like this is the same guy who did uh, Detective Comics and Rebirth and I love him there. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad that he's getting to draw these Gotham characters again with such an amazing script. So I, 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 I don't know. I, I have to give this one a 9 out of 10, uh, almost a 10 out of 10 on, on a really good day just because I loved it that much. And I can't wait to get the next issue. Like, I really can't. I, I wish I could have it right now, but unfortunately that's not how the world works. But yeah, I just, I adored it. <laughs> Rob, what do you think about the Red Hood story, man? Yeah, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You give me a story featuring a Robin, I'm going to read the hell out of it, and I'm yep. probably going to love it. This is the Red Hood story we've been waiting for for yes. a long time. A very long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, so like with the recent run, I kind of dug all of it, yeah. but I could not wrap my head around the point of this, that Generation Outlaw yeah, shit, the, the school. Famous. Yeah, it was kind of forced. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like whenever Red Hood didn't have much to do, they threw the they threw the 
generation outlaw into the book and then yeah. he would get zipped back out with artemis and bizarre it just didn't make any sense it I, lacked direction yeah and this I, I, does and not the problem place. is is you just jason has been red hood and the outlaws for so long it's kind of hard to see him as a solo character and justify his existence like what can you do and that's why i'm just i'm so stoked for this book because it's finally giving him a much needed direction in gotham city yeah, that's definitely one character I love, but he also needs some development. Yeah, like I think we're definitely going to get that because you're seeing Jason now struggle with himself for the first time in years instead of struggling mm-hmm. with with other people and his emotions and relationships with the people around him. Now he's he's back to struggling with himself and his own emotions, mm-hmm. and that's going to be wild to see over six issues. And I cannot wait to see what Batman does when he finds out that you know, Jason's actually killed again in Gotham. But I agree, like, they're, they're also doing this kind of flip-flop between Batman's okay with Jason, Batman's not okay with Jason. We're never seeing when his emotions change, just one day he shows up and he hates Jason again. But with this story, like you guys have said, it's it's great. I'm stoked. I also gave this a 9 out of 10. All right. Well, the story for the next one is brought to us by writer Stephanie Phillips, who seems to be picking up an awful lot of work lately from DC, and art from Laura Braga and Ivan Placencia with Darren Bennett on letters. Brandon, you want to walk us through this one? Sure. Um, Yeah, I I really like Stephanie Phillips. Um, She did a great book at Dark Horse called The Butcher of Paris, which I'd recommend for any, you know, cape or non-cape fan. Um, so I, I've been super stoked to see her get more work at DC. But this story basically is, is it's shorter. It's about an eight-page reflection on basically Harley and Ivy's relationship uh, throughout the past years. And we basically see Harley return to um, Ivy's uh, garden, which was burned during the Joker War. And she's kind of reflecting on how she feels that her love has kind of diminished over the time. It's hard to find someone that you love and intercut between her kind of uh, reminiscing on her time together and she's particularly sad about it um we get these flashback scenes to harley and ivy in their early days kind of heisting and then uh they return back to the garden and are basically talking about how they're going to grow it up and all that stuff and it kind of sets the stage for the early days of their relationship really cementing that and showing us how valuable it is uh, in Harley's life. Um, and basically the issue ends uh, by Harley basically saying that even if she doesn't have that relationship with Ivy anymore, she's willing to wait for it um, because, because Ivy is absolutely worth it and she's willing to just wait for as long as it takes. I really dug the story. You know, it was short, it was simple, just kind of a reflection on their relationship and it seems like it's going to be a, a preamble to Stephanie Phillips's run on Harley Quinn moving forward. I really like this thoughtful tone for Harley Quinn. It's odd. When I think of Harley Quinn, I, I think of like, like jokes and banter, and there's all of that, but I, I usually don't think of her as more of a somber character. So this whole direction is kind of a weird shift, but I'm really interested to see where they're going with it. And it feels like they're trying to tap more into the early roots that she had as a psychiatrist rather than just kind of, you know, random jokes and that sort of thing. So um, I think there's a lot to like about this setup. Um, it definitely gets me interested for the Harley Quinn series 
moving forward, which is something I never thought I would say in my life. And I really dug the art by Laura Braga, and I thought that that really captured the romantic but also somber air of the relationship between uh, Harley and Ivy. So I would probably give this one a comfortable 7.5 out of 10, uh, maybe an 8 out of 10, probably on Valentine's Day or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it says it's continued in the pages of Harley and Batman. And like I mentioned before, in researching that title, I found out that Riley fucking Rosmo is going to be drawing a Harley Quinn ongoing. Please somebody keep him out of the Batverse. I I don't want I don't have an issue with abstract art. I have a problem with low quality call myself special because I turn in quickly drawn crayon art. I'm so pissed off right now. Don't, but don't back worry. to this we'll, story. We'll turn Josh one of these days. Yeah. Not on to Riley Rosmo. <laughs> It would be easier to get me to pay a compliment to Brian Michael Bendis in person. Hey, hey, take it this way. When I first started reading New X-Men, I absolutely hated Frank Quitely's art. And I look back on that now, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I was so stupid. Because I absolutely adore Frank Quitely's detailed art now. So I'm telling you, it can change. We can change you. This could be the book that (laughs) changes This could be the book. (laughs) <laughs> oh boy well i suppose we'll see but he's gonna have to step up his game from the recent stuff he's done so that said we're i'm gonna go back to the story i am com i am so happy to see that basically everything that sam humphreys did to violate harley quinn has been completely undone oh my god <laughs> i hated that book so much i wanted to write in I wanted to call into the DC Daily Show and say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is awesome, man. We're getting back to who Harley is and away from any sort of idea that she would be romantically involved with Booster Gold. What was her, that? her girl is Poison Ivy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. So this may end up being the road back to romance. Or it could be the one that finally puts the nail in the coffin. I hope it's the first choice because I feel like that needs to happen. Uh, The art in this story was enjoyable and I'm obviously pretty hopeful for this title. And I like Harley's new outfit too. So this little one's getting an 8.5 out of 10. Now we'll move over to the third story of the book with Brandon Thomas writing and art from Max Dunbar and Luis Guerrero with Steve Wands on lettering. Rob, care to step outside and run us through the outsiders? Yeah. All right. So in a forest in Japan, we see Jefferson Pierce waking up locked in a cell at the top of a tower cast in shadows. He's calling for Rex Mason, the metamorpho, who replies all groggy and does not remember how they got there or who Jefferson is. Through the power of flashbacks, we go back to the previous afternoon where Jefferson and Katana are fleeing from magical assassins in speedboats. Jefferson holds back everything they throw at them using his electricity until an arrow gets through and pierces his shoulder. The assassins fire a rocket into the sky above our heroes and the explosion unleashes Metamorpho who then captures them. Back in the present now, Rex is remembering the events and asks what happened to Katana as we see her locked in a battle with a horde of ninjas. Jefferson finds his power yet again and tells Rex he can get them out but it will hurt like hell. As Jefferson unleashes a blast of electricity, Rex screams in pain, and we find out that the tower they are locked in is actually Metamorpho himself. This is a, a bit of a curious story for me. I enjoyed it. It was fun. 
but I didn't appreciate that it kind of just dropped us seemingly halfway in to the idea of the story. Like, what were they doing in Japan? What's this whole thing? I get they'll probably explore that over the next couple of issues, but to just put us in that and then leave flashbacks to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah. And it was kinda, didn't really sit well with me. Kind of random placement. Cause it's called, yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a book about like Gotham heroes and then suddenly we're on like some Island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, I gave this one a six out of 10 for that. Six out of 10. Yeah. All right. Brandon, what did you think about the outsiders, man? Um, I, I kind of dug this story. I mean, I love the Outsiders setup that they've had since the title from, is that 2019? Um, yeah. yeah, with, uh, with Katana and Black Lightning and Orphan and, uh, and Signal. So this was just kind of a fun return to the team, uh, and a cool way to bring in Metamorpho now that I guess everything's back in continuity post death metal. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just kind of, Fun banter back and forth between the team as they're in the middle of this chase, and then we kind of, you know, set up the dynamics and everything. And there's a little mystery as to how they got there and what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, similar to Rob, we were kind of just dropped into the middle of it, and I, I wasn't really sure like where to place this one, like what what exactly yeah. is doing. It just kind of just kind of happened um but I, I i it was written in a way that was interesting enough that got me intrigued in what was coming next so um i really dug that and then i think the art really worked with the fast-paced tone especially during the uh kind of like chase sequence where they're on the boat that was really well illustrated i thought um mm-hmm. so yeah i would feel comfortable giving this one a, a 7.5 out of 10 maybe an 8 on a good day 7.5 all right, so I looked at this whole issue going. I am a, I, I love the Outsiders, man, yeah. and uh, the the team's always been really cool. It's like Batman's version of the Suicide Squad, kind mm-hmm. of. But this this latest iteration where they are pairing Katana and Black Lightning together, I don't care what book you put them in, as long as you keep this dynamic going between the two of them, I will buy it and read it. Uh, that's guaranteed. So in the book, there's a whole lot happening here, and you can tell it is definitely a setup issue because there's there's no answers given whatsoever. <laughs> but hopefully, the following story will have enough room to flesh some things out a bit more. Like I said, I always love Black Lightning and Katana together. I hope that they eventually become a couple. You know, but uh, it seems like they're headed that way. But in future state, it wasn't certain, so I couldn't tell. The big thing here that surprised me was the revelation that Metamorpho is not held captive with them, but he's actually the jail itself. Kaboom! Mind blown. But (laughs) it was a very short read, but I thought it was a fun read with a promise for better stories to come. And, of course, this art, again, it was really great to look at all the way through. I thought it was an 8.25. Give it a solid 8 and a quarter, man. Mm. And then next up is the final story of the book and the episode with writing from Matthew Rosenberg, one of my personal favorites, and I believe Brandon's as well, and art from Ryan Benjamin and Antonio Fabella with Seda Temafante bringing us letters, and I haven't seen him in D.C. for a little while. Brandon, what is going on with Grifter? Yeah, I, I kind of had to pry this story away from Josh just because I was... I, I, I really like Matthew Rosenberg, and I've been excited to see his take on Gotham characters, especially a character like Grifter, who's such a bastard. 
but I think it, it works right. perfectly and with that voice. Um, and it does. Uh, and I Grifter's one of my favorite non-major DC characters, yeah. like my favorite B-list characters. He's like my DC's Deadpool man. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. But yeah, Hawkeye. You're lucky I gave him up. Yeah, Hawkeye. Hawkeye <laughs> Freefall scribe Matthew Rosenberg makes his uh, non-feature state Gotham debut in a, a really fun story involving Grifter's duties as Lucius Fox's new bodyguard. So the issue opens in the middle of a flashback on a firefight in Midway City as Team Six, who are back, featuring uh, Cole Cash and his brother. Uh, they are attacking a gang led by Mr. Freeze, and they appear to be losing pretty badly. Cole decides to rush out into the field and save the day, and he is shot down almost immediately as his brother rushes in to save him. Eventually, though, the cavalry, who seems to be the Justice League, shows up to save Team Six, and we flash forward to present day. Uh, Cole Cash is now Lucius Fox's bodyguard, and is staking out some mysterious dudes in limos. He has a little back and forth with a woman, uh on the comms who we don't see uh but she's kind of giving him crap on you know his position as grifter cole believes the men are there to assassinate the prime minister Kroll yanko uh deciding it's the right time to attack cole takes down the two men uh only to reveal that they were there as extra protection for the prime minister not to kidnap him uh, the prime minister then pulls Grifter into the pool as Grifter had tried to save the Prime Minister. Uh, as the entire party of onlookers looks down at Grifter and Lucius Fox jokingly remarks, I see you started my meeting with Prime Minister Krolyanko early. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, we basically move forward and uh, Lucius is kind of chiding uh, Cole on his failure um, basically sabotaging the deal that he had made uh, with the Prime Minister, uh, and then kind of just moving forward, setting up the a, a deal that's worth $25 million, yes. and Grifter's like, I'll pay you back. Uh, and yeah. he said, that's when he tells him it's 20 He goes, can we, can we, can we make, make weekly payments of 100 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I'll let you do it for the next 13 million weeks. It's just, it's, it's a great back and forth dynamic <laughs> that they have between Drifter and Lucius Fox. Um, they really work well together. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Grifter. Uh, so we flash forward to Gotham City where Grifter and Lucius Fox are riding in a limo. And Lucius is essentially telling Grifter that he's going back to the office and he needs to get out. He needs to be in Gotham with the people, not just protecting Lucius all the time. Even bodyguards have to have fun sometimes. So we see Grifter going to a very shifty bar and kind of annoying the local people. But uh, we see that he is trying to get into a meeting with an unseen figure who is later revealed to be the Penguin, along with Nora Freeze, the reanimated wife of Mr. Freeze, who has now taken on uh, the Freeze moniker. Um, and we basically... Do you remember the issue that uh, Tom Taylor wrote where that happened in Detective Comics? Uh, that was... I don't think it was Tom Taylor. I think that was Pete Tomasi, and that was like... Like ten, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like somewhere in the ten tens or ten twenties. That whole arc where this, he revives uh, his wife, Mister Freeze. 
and she she looks like this at the end of it yeah yeah apparently yeah. like the whole reviving thing kind of makes her skin blue and they kind of run around doing crimes but she abandons him and it's a whole thing but basically she's uh, yeah. she's the, yeah i mean i remember this story yeah, well yeah. i just i could have swore tom taylor wrote that i yeah. don't i'm not gonna argue with brandon this oh, yeah. dude's addiction no, uh, yeah no no, no. <laughs> tom, tom taylor did like one issue of detective comics in between just because i think pete tomasi needed a break but um I would love to see him. Gotcha. But anyway, getting back to our, our friend Cole Cash. So Cole Cash is kind of giving Penguin some crap, basically asking him if they can do business or not because he's threatening him in a way. We flash forward to an alley where Grifter is grabbing a smoke and he's kind of going back and forth with the unseen woman who is inviting him to basically come and spend the night because she is alone and she is feeling horny. And I don't know about you guys, but I think... This might be Zealot. I saw an opinion online saying that the girl that Grifter is talking to might be Zealot from the Wildcats. I'm not really sure who it's supposed oh. to be, but because they have this kind of, you know, strange, like, back and forth and almost sexual relationship, um, it could be Zealot, who is Grifter's former girlfriend from the Wildcats. But, um, it, it could be Zealot hmm. and... Um... The other one that I that entered in, entered into my head is uh, Vale. Is that right? I think you might be right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, she's got like shoulder length there. Yeah, yeah it um, could be. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely one of those two. That's the only other female that I can even remember, other than Zealot, that he's ever had that. Yeah. I guess you would call it chemistry yeah. with. Um. But yeah, basically. Grifter is sitting there grabbing a smoke, going back and forth with the woman on the comm, uh, until he realizes that he has company in his alley. Uh, and he kind of remarks that this should be a fun experience. So we see Grifter kind of hanging out in the alley, only to reveal a shadow in the background. And that shadow is none other than the mysterious Batman himself. A Batman is kind of looking around, trying to find out where Grifter is, only to have Grifter surprise him. Uh, holding a knife up to his neck. Batman, kind of smirkingly, is able to throw Grifter off with a flashbang as Grifter attempts to go for the crotch shot, only to reveal that Batman <laughs> apparently feels nothing in that area. Um, and I, I jokingly remarked with a friend that this is Batman's uh, patented bat cup, which is... Uh, Perfect against any enemies going for the crotch shot. But anyway, Batman and Grifter <laughs> trade blows again, uh, as we saw in Batman number 101. Um, and they're kind of going back and forth on what kind of secret Grifter is trying to play, what kind of con he's going for with uh, Lucius Fox. And basically, um, Bats is just kind of chiding him on what kind of secrets he's saying and what he plans to do and Grifter is saying, well, you can't really do anything. You can't arrest me. I haven't done anything illegal and you have no jurisdiction within Gotham city. So you really have no place here. I'm going to keep doing my business and you're going to keep doing yours. Uh, and as Batman angrily soars off into the distance, uh, Grifter kind of chides him saying, Hey, is your name Dave? You look like a Dave basically trying to <laughs> affirm his identity. Um, and I, I just have to say, and I wrote this down, I love Matt Rosenberg's voice for Grifter. I, I was excited for it in the beginning, and it just, it, it really carried through, uh, this entire book where he's got like this kind of snarky bastard tone, and it really works well when he's paired 
with other characters like Batman and like Penguin. But anyway, we flash forward to uh, Wayne Enterprises the next day where Lucius Fox is kind of giving Drifter the spiel on the installation program and we need to find that Drifter is nodding off and not paying attention at all. And Lucius Fox is basically asking, you know, what he was up to last night, given that he has a shiner on his face. But Drifter basically kind of says he's not really allowed to say anything at all and just kind of moves on from there. And then we see Grifter kind of slinking off into the background where after Lucius Fox basically tells him that he is dismissed for the day uh, because his children need to show up, uh, Grifter is kind of sneaking around Wayne Enterprises uh, and that's when we see him stealing a security card from one of the guards after clumsily spilling coffee all over his jacket, gaining entrance into one of Wayne Enterprise's secret rooms, uh, where he starts to kind of hint at the fact that maybe he's working for Lucius Fox with ulterior motives. Then we move on to the Gotham River that night, where we see a police presence at the city investigating a dead body, and we see Nightwing at the scene basically saying that he wished he'd beaten Batman to the scene, uh, but he's wondering who it is that's dead in the river. And we reveal that it's actually Nora Freeze, and that Batman believes that he was, and that Batman believes that she had a run-in with a man who calls himself the Drifter. So this was a really awesome start to this five-part Drifter story. Uh, I've said it a million times, I'm going to say it again. I really love Matthew Rosenberg's voice for Drifter. I think it works very well in this story, establishing his place in Gotham and his motivations throughout. I'm really interested to see what the mystery is with the woman, what Cole's connection is to the mysterious Marlowe that was hinted at in the uh, issue of Batman earlier on. Uh, and I'm especially interested to see what this big mystery is going to be with uh, Nora Freeze. As for the art, I have not been the biggest fan of Ryan Benjamin in the past. I found his pencils to be a little loose at times. Um, sometimes it feels a little too sketchy for my tastes, but I think it definitely kind of works with this high-octane drifter story. Um, and I, I think that there were actually some panels that I really genuinely enjoyed uh, more than I've ever enjoyed anything from Ryan Benjamin, particularly the fight between Drifter and Batman. So overall, I would feel very comfortable in giving this one a solid 8.5 out of 10, possibly an 8.75 on a very good day. And I'm looking forward to seeing the further adventures of that bastard Grifter in Gotham City. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Rob, what do you think about Grifter? I've been loving the story. I've been loving everything DC's been doing with Grifter recently. And Matthew Rosenberg writing this is a great choice. I honestly also saw, like you said earlier, it's DC's perfect answer to Deadpool. It combines the perfect balance of humor, action, and it's got some mystery involved. You can't go wrong with this. I can't wait to see who killed Nora Freeze because this cop at the beginning of the page said there was a witness reported a chick with a sword. You guys probably know a lot more about uh, Grifter's past than I do. Does he have anybody in his history with a with a sword? I imagine in the nineties. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was thinking it might be Zealot. Because I know she was the um, kind of, I don't forget the name, but it was like the, those Amazon warriors. Um, and they used swords, and I think she kind of famously had a sword that she would wield. So, I don't know, maybe this is the way that they're going to fold in the Wildcats. That'd yeah. be awesome. 
Maybe she's also the the one that he's talking to. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I love the story. So I gave this an 8.5 out of 10, too. Can't go wrong with this one. I opened this up, man, and when I got to that last page, I was or when I got to it, I was like, Nora Freeze, the Mrs. Freeze version. <laughs> Woo-hoo! I, then, oh, wait. Crap. Then, <laughs> like, did Grift or kill her? That's, I'm, was it? I don't know. Was it his, uh, his mystery girlfriend, who more than likely probably is Zealot? <laughs> I did not take the whole sword thing into account there. But I thought, uh, as as a whole, this story was fun. I'm always a big Grifter fan. Cole Cash is the shit. He's fun to read, no matter what kind of story he's in. His personality carries it. I like the new little origin with it. And, uh, you know, like, as usual, Rosenberg's stories are great. Mm-hmm. The art was great, too. You add that together, man, and you get yourself a pretty decent score. That one is getting a 9 out of 10 for me. So, overall... The whole darn Urban Legends book is going to get a 9 out of 10 for me. I actually edited up all my scores, and it came out to like 8.8776-something, so I just rounded up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I, thinking of what we said earlier about wishing that Sadarsky could kind of do more with Red Hood than just, you know, six issues. And I, I feel the same way with Grifter. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know how much Grifter can carry a title now, but... I, I I just I, I kind of wish that Matt could get a chance to do a Grifter title, even if it was only like ten issues or something. Uh, I mean, I th- okay, so yeah, a Grifter without some kind of a setup certainly couldn't handle, couldn't sell enough copies yeah. to get his own ongoing. Mm. That said, this little dynamic that they've got going on between him and Lucius, uh, yeah, and yeah, they've got so much time to kill in between now and future state that i mean that's five years of comic books mm-hmm. yeah. you know and th- that could easily be gobbled up if we start bringing in some more wildcats i mean that could turn into a hell of a book yeah. so you know fingers crossed that they see the potential in rosenberg and in grifter mm-hmm. and they keep that going man what did you think about the whole book uh I did not do the the math on my scores, so let me uh, see. I'm just weird. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> if I had to guess, I'd probably say it's like near an 8.5. That's definitely how I feel about it, like an 8.5. Just a really, really solid debut for this anthology book. Um, each story mm-hmm. just felt great in its own way, even if, you know, the outsider story kind of threw us into it. Like, I was... Each story left me with an excited feeling for what comes next, and that's not easy to do with four separate stories. Yeah, yeah. I also gave this an eight point five. Just like you're saying, a, each story had its own merit. I know I, I didn't enjoy the Outsiders as much, but it's it was still fun, and all of it together, it it's a solid book to read, especially if you're new to comics. Oh yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. All right, that's the end of the books, everybody. Now it's time for us to pick our top three books of the week and our favorite panel slash moment of the week. Rob, you want to go first? Yeah. That? So my top three, starting with number three, I had wonder woman It was a fun intro. It was great ride. I'm excited to see where it goes. The mythology involved is amazing. And I honestly hope they delve into more mythology from around the world. See wonder woman as a God placed around the world in mythology would, would I think would be great. Number two, I had Batman Urban Legends. Like I said, a great intro for any new reader. A solid title with four fun stories. 
And number one, I had the Joker. That one just spoke volumes to me. Horrific, murderous, bloody volumes, but volumes nonetheless. I loved it. And the best panel, I had a hard time choosing this one, but I gave it to that panel in the Joker where they flash back to that detective Jim Gordon was talking to where he found his boogeyman, his devil, and it was a man just eating a teenager's face. That was horrific. And I I had to scan that page. It was disturbing, but it was it was nicely done. I agree. Brandon, what did you think? Okay. Uh for my top three, coming in at number three, I have the Joker. I thought that that was just a really solid horror debut and certainly an interesting book for the Batman catalog moving forward. I thought it was a great way to bring in uh, Jim Gordon, who you know has kind of been absent for a little while, but use him to weave a story around the Joker. Um, so I'm really interested to see where that goes. And then, of course, as, as I've said many times, any excuse to use Bluebird, Harper Rowe, it's always going to put a smile on my face. So I was happy to see that. And I love the art. Definitely works with all the horror tones in the story. So I really liked uh, the first issue of the Joker. Coming in at number two is Batman Urban Legends. I feel like that one just kind of goes without saying. Like the Zadarsky story was great. The Stephanie Phillips story was great. Outsider story was great. Grifter story was great. Everything about this was just really solid. And that's that's hard to do for an anthology book in such a satisfying way. But I just, I'm so glad that this book is out there. And of course, I'm just so glad that Chip Zdarsky gets his turn at DC and Matthew Rosenberg gets his turn at DC and all these people get their turn at DC. It's, it's a lot to look forward to. And then coming in at number one, I've got to give it to the Green Lantern, number 12. Excellent crescendo, a, a very sad and emotional uh, goodbye to a book that I've loved a lot um and uh, even if it wasn't for everyone i was just fully into this book from beginning to end and i i'm a huge green lantern fan so obviously i'm going to be reading what comes next but i have to say for me personally it's going to be hard to see what's going to top this so uh, that's definitely my number one as for the panel of the week uh for as much as i would love to give it to literally any panel in the green lantern because it was excellent i would just be lying to myself if I didn't give it to the last page of the Chip Zdarsky Red Hood story, because the moment I saw that, I was like, this is it. Like, this is the one. This is going to be my penalty. <laughs> and it's literally just Jason firing his gun at that scumbag, and it has the onomatopoeia, bang, bang, bang. And it's almost like you can hear it yep. in your head, and it's just, it's like got him, his face in shadow. It's just so perfect. Indeed it is. Uh, my top three, just like you guys, my everything here was a little hard to choose. And, you know, I mean, that's been the theme here for the last few weeks. So I'm liking the direction that this is going. It means we're getting great yeah. books, man. Oh, number three is The Joker. That was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. It was great. I gave it an 8 out of 10 because there was some things that I found a little wrong with it. But... I probably knocked it down a half a point just because it was a villain book, to be honest with you. But <laughs> that said, number two is going to go to Green Lantern. That got a nine. Number two is going to be in Green Lantern. That got a nine out of ten from me, too. 
And its placement in the top three should be pretty damn evident just by reading and looking at it, man. And the only reason why Urban Legends scored higher than that one did in my placement was because of the uniqueness that I just read an anthology book and was not mad at any of the stories. I know. My God. It's, that's, like, impressive. I, I really think so. Way impressive. You always get one garbage yeah. filler thing in an anthology, and there was nothing here. This was done so wonderful. <laughs> but my favorite moment, my dudes, not only were there so many good stories, so much gorgeous art, and... I had a lot of personal favorites going on this week, so it was super hard for me. Instead of going for something that was an amazing splash or some cool story part, um, and I honestly thought that uh, that Rob was going to be all up on the Green Lantern, so I shied away from choosing that just to go a little different. And I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to the one where I it, it, it wasn't an awe moment; it was one that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> And that was when Grifter shouted out to Batman, Hey, is it Dave? You look like a Dave. <laughs> I, I laughed out loud, dude. Man, that, that was great. Well done, Rosenberg, yeah. for really voicing Grifter exactly how he should be. I, I almost had the, <laughs> the moment where Grifter kicks Batman in the crotch. Is my yeah, that, that was my runner-up as well. That was great. Really? Nothing? Really? Nothing? You don't feel anything? <laughs> exactly well that was our favorite part of the show and now it's time for yours it is time for the biggest stinker oh that's nasty brandon which title made your stink list today uh this was kind of tough i i don't think that any were particularly bad in a, in a stinky sense but um <laughs> I, I think the weakest book for me would probably have to be Superman. I mean, I like I said, I was interested in the direction and what they're trying to do with the relationship between Superman and, and John and trying to at least salvage it and make it into something that is worth reading. But overall, I mean, like I said, I don't really have any particular interest in the Rift plotline. Um, and I, I don't want to see another Death of Superman story. We've had like five of those. I, I really don't care if there's another one. Um, and even if there was kind of the fun Bibo Babowski story in the back of the book, I just, I don't know if that was enough to salvage the entire thing and make it just really great. So I would have to give my biggest stinker to Superman number 29. Not a terrible book by any means, but not particularly great in any way. Just kind of, you know, okay. A solid start, but, you know, nothing grand. Fair enough. Rob, who cut the cheese for you? Oh, that also, for me, was Superman. I have to admit, it. if I'm enjoying the backup story more than the main story, <laughs> then the main story is not doing enough. It was just a... It feels like one of those filler issues that is between big chapters. It didn't do enough for me for an intro story for Superman and in Infinite Frontier. It should have been bigger and better mm -hmm. i agree mm -hmm. i chose that for my biggest stinker as well i was honestly i was just i've it was really disappointing uh for a couple different reasons i feel like the story and the idea of superman dying has been done to death we already know because we've seen multiple times that he's depicted in the future he's not going to be dying 
and with with all of the Justice League stuff that's going on right now in all of the media, they're not making the big blue go anywhere anytime soon. So as far as the story goes, I'm I'm really hoping for better out of this. And I think I don't know where I heard this from, but I think I was so disappointed by the art in large part due to the fact that for some reason I thought Ivan Reyes was supposed to be drawing Superman. And I got really excited for that yeah, because that, I'd rather have nobody else draw Superman yeah. than him. He, well, he, to my knowledge, he's doing Batman Superman, but I mean, oh, okay, yeah, that's I, where I, I screwed I up. Yes, he probably doesn't want to do the main Superman book again, honestly, because he was on that for the majority of the Bendis stuff, and it's like I get wanting to move on to a different book, but yeah, I agree, it is kind of a bummer that he couldn't stay. Yeah. Pair him with Mark Wade, and I'd read that forever, oh, man. man. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> well, everybody has made it to the end of the show, so we are going to do that one final announcement that we wanted to share with our lovely listeners. All right, so some of you may be aware that I've got some medical issues going on, and this is unfortunately starting to hinder my abilities to host the show. In fact, I actually won't even be able to make it to next week's show because I'll be with doctors all day. But have no fear. I will still be on the show as a co-host until I'm able to find a suitable DC replacement. Is that you? You can shout out to us at notarobotpodcast at gmail.com and see if you can be a part of our ever-growing podcast network as a co-host on this very DC review show. And who knows, maybe some others as well. We'll have to see, won't we? And with that, that is the end of the show. Come back next week for more DC Comics Talk when we'll be reviewing The Flash number 768, Nightwing number 78, Justice League number 59, and Catwoman number 29. It'll be that week where Brandon will be taking over duties as host of the show, and we hope to see you there. And as always, all of you amazing humans out there, thank you so very much for listening. You are the reason why we do this. Visit campsite.bio forward slash notarobotcomics to hear all of our episodes on nearly any platform and patreon.com forward slash notarobotpodcasts, that's more than one, for the exclusive content that we make for our patrons with all of our offerings, TV and movie reviews, all kinds of comics, Kids Corner, we have a pop culture podcast coming up, we have one that's going to be doing war movies. You guys have no idea. We've got everything you could ever want under the Not A Robot banner. Come and check us out at notarobotpodcast.com because that'll take you everywhere you need to go for everything Not A Robot. With that, there's only one way we say goodbye around here. Until next time, be good to each other. And don't be a robot.